Good morning. Uh, if you uh, if you have well have been if you are a parent, uh, whether you've grown kids or or tiny kids, you'll you'll relate to this. Uh, have you ever gotten like let anger just thoroughly get the best of you in in a situation? It doesn't have to be with your children; it could be with anybody. But you know, it doesn't matter. So maybe you're, you're naturally an angry person. Maybe you're the calmest human in your family. But no matter what, there there are times that like your anger has just been ravaged out of control. Maybe you had just a long stretch of awful things that just kind of caused the stress bucket to overfill, and then someone came and just, you know, poked the bear just enough that it just unleashed upon them. It wasn't their fault, but you just have had enough. They were the final straw, right? For me, I have a four and a one-year-old, and the four-year-old is a teenager already, and so in a lot of ways, he he fills my bucket on his own. But I had had about a couple weeks ago just a stretch of a few days where it, it was just stressful days. Some of it I was, you know, nights here, and a lot of work going on here for that particular week. Some of it was, like, at home, too. There was just a lot happening, nothing bad, but just a lot. And I had probably had about three, four nights where I hadn't really slept, and, man, bedtime Graham just poked my, my, my buttons, like, really, really hard. And after about the eighth wake-up, I just, I lost it in an angry way that is just beyond what probably you should lose it in an angry way. And I could tell that I had scared him, too, because he didn't come out of his room after that, after that. But sometimes our anger just overflows, right? We're not perfect people, right? If, if that's you, I, I don't want to make you feel guilty. Sometimes we just lose it a little bit because we're, we're sinful people, right? We, we do that. We have this the, the calm-natured thing going on normally, but life can just hit. And, and what happens is, when, when the bucket overflows, it just overflows. And we're like that because we are sinners. We aren't perfect. And, and I'm here to tell you, not that it's okay to get overly angry, but that if it happens, don't beat yourself up too much. However, the problem comes when we encounter passages like today, because in the passage we're going to look at today, we see a person do this, but it's Jesus, right? And so, in our passage for this morning, we see Jesus seemingly lose it in anger and, and lash out in a way that is kind of over and above and a little bit vindictive-seeming. And that's problematic because Jesus is not sinful, right? So you get a little bit too angry because life's hard. That's expected. You're a sinner in the sight of God. Jesus does it. It becomes a far bigger issue. And so this morning we're going to look at a passage that you probably have heard if you've been part of the church for any length of time, but you probably haven't understood it, and maybe you just haven't bothered to understand it, because on its own it's not super provocative sounding, it's just confusing and easy to kind of push aside. And that's the the passage of Jesus cursing the fig tree. And so I would invite us to stand this morning as we read in Matthew chapter 21. Uh, the passage as submitted uh, was verses, I believe, 20 or 15 through 22 or 18 through 22, I think 21, 18 through 22. So we'll, we'll read that passage just as it sits in its context to start with, uh, and then we'll dig into some other places too and see if we can't make sense of why on earth Jesus seemingly curses at a fig tree for no reason whatsoever, unprompted, okay? Matthew 21, starting in verse 18. In the morning, there it is. In the morning as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. 
When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, it's worth noting that this account isn't just in the book of Matthew. It shows up in another gospel, and that's the gospel of Mark. And while this Mark's passage wasn't submitted <clears throat> as one of the passages from you guys, uh, it, it, it is something that we should look at as well because Mark gives us some details that Matthew doesn't give us. And it also contradicts itself seemingly at first. And so we're going to look at the Mark one too um, on the screen here. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. So, we have Jesus on the way back into Jerusalem. All right, it's, it's the morning. And they're walking, they're heading into Jerusalem, and he gets hungry, as people do, because Jesus is fully human, fully divine. And off in the distance, he sees a fig tree, and it's very lush with leaves, right? It's kind of in full bloom, so to speak. You know, it's not a dead-looking tree. It's a very alive-looking tree. And so he naturally goes over to see if there's figs on it. And when he finds the tree, he realizes that there are no figs. It's barren. And his reply is to curse the tree. And, and Matthew says that immediately after he curses it, it, it withers. The disciples watched it just wither to death. Um, Mark will suggest that to happen later on uh, in the chronological timeline a little bit. Luke also gives us a very important detail that I think makes Jesus look a little worse. Or sorry, not Luke, Mark. Um, the tree, as, as Mark says, was not in season. So Jesus, who, you know, made everything, including this tree, somehow didn't get the horticultural memo to understand what season it was for figs, and he walks up to a tree that he should have known wouldn't have figs because it's not in season, and then when it doesn't have figs, gets mad at it and curses the tree. Right? You ever like punch a door because you stubbed your toe? You know, like that's the kind of reaction that we see Jesus employ here. He goes to something that shouldn't have fruit. It's not in season. It doesn't have fruit. His result is to curse it to death, and the tree withers. Seems a little bit like a brash overreaction to me. And it might seem like a small passage, but it's one that's used by a lot of scholarly atheists to actually refute the divinity of Christ. Because if Christ can lose his temper, then he's not God at all. Because God is perfect. Right? It would mean that Jesus somehow would have fallen short of perfection while on this earth, which would exclude him from the claim of divinity. No one who isn't perfect can be God. And so it's, it's actually a pretty harsh, controversial passage if you don't understand what is happening with the figs, and it's very confusing. And so for us to understand what is going on here, we need to do a couple things. We need to actually have some study in a few directions. The first is that we have to look at the passage in context, which is a trend that you see emerging, right? When something's confusing, look at what's around it. But then we also have to do some horticultural study about figs. So today, you get to have bonus content. We're going to look at scripture, and then we're going to look at figs. You're going to know more about fig trees than you've ever wanted to know by the end of this. And I promise you, if, if horticulture bores you to tears, it matters. It actually shapes the narrative of, of what Jesus is trying to do here 
a whole lot. And so this morning, we'll, we'll dig deep into that horticulture. We'll look at some temple customs, because believe it or not, that matters too. And then we'll put it all together, and we'll see that what happened here is not just some random cursing incident, but a calculated way that Jesus communicates important truth to his disciples at that time and to the church at large. Okay? Seems like a lot from a fig tree, right? So, the first thing to do is to see where this passage sits in the book of Matthew. Matthew 21, uh, the beginning of 21, we're here now in verse 18, but Matthew 21, 1 is the beginning of the triumphal entry of Jesus. We're getting into Holy Week, right? Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, Hosanna, you know, we do that on Palm Sunday, the week before Easter. He's entered in, and what happens is the, the next morning he gets up and he goes to the temple, like any good Jewish man or rabbi would do to worship, and he shows up at the temple. And what we have is then the passage right before the fig tree in Matthew. Jesus cleanses the temple, right? He comes into the temple, and he sees all the money changers and all that stuff happening, and he cleanses it out, right? And, and when, you, when you look at the account of Mark and Matthew, there's a discrepancy in the timeline that's really important. Because in, in Matthew's gospel, you have the cleansing of the temple, and then the cursing of the fig tree. But in Mark's gospel, the cursing of the fig tree happens first. It happens on the way to the temple in the morning. Right? So according to the gospel of Mark, Jesus gets up in the morning, sees the tree, curses the tree, goes to the temple, cleanses the temple, and then on the way back, or the next morning when they arise, he see, the, the disciples then see that the tree has in fact died and withered. And they're amazed and confused as to what is going on. And they ask Jesus, what, what is happening here, right? And so we have to establish, well, which one is it? Did the temple come first or did the fig tree come first? And the answer is that generally, if you want to know something chronological in Scripture, you go with Mark, right? And the reason you go with Mark is because of the audiences to which the two are writing. So Mark was writing to primarily Greek people. And Greek people were very stoic and concerned about order and chronology and everything being right. And so Mark recorded things in the most logistical, how it happened way possible. That's also why when you read them, Mark's the most blunt of all the Gospels. He just tells it like it is. He's not very flowery. He's not very poetic like John or Matthew. He just kind of is like, well, this happened. And then he went to the tree. Then he cursed the tree. And then he cleansed the temple. It's just very matter of fact, right? If you're a new Christian and you want to read a first gospel, Mark's a great one because it's the least flowery and confusing. He just gets straight to the point. Right? But he, he's writing to Greeks, and they would want to know the order in which it happened. They would be very concerned about the implications of that. Okay, so he cursed the tree, then the temple, then the tree's dead when they see it the next morning. Yes, Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience, and they would be concerned with kind of theological themes and overviews. And at the very end of today, we'll look at exactly why I think Matthew put it in the order that he did. But what we have is cursing of tree, cleaning of temple, next morning they find the tree dead. So that's the chronology that we have here, and that helps us understand what's going on here. So what we're left with is this tree cursing sandwich with the temple cleansing wedged in between. Right? And so this is because the two things are related. Jesus' cleansing of the temple and the cursing of the fig tree is one unified, singular story. And when you see it together, we'll start to put some things into perspective and make sense of why he does it. So let's look at the temple cleansing a little more closely. Right? Jesus enters the temple and finds it full of market salesmen and money changers. Right? 
And the way that the temple is structured here is very important, right? So the temples function kind of like concentric circles. The innermost circle is the Holy of Holies, right? Only the priest, the high priest, gets to enter there one day of a year on the Day of Atonement. And they would tie a rope to his ankles when he went in. In case he did something to offend the Lord and was struck dead, they could pull the body out because no one could run in after him. Right? It was that holy. It was believed that that, was, that is where God dwells. That is his house, his dwelling place. And so in the very inner sanctum of the temple was this holy of holies. Right outside of it was the area for the priests. It was where they were, where they, where they spent their time. It's where they stored their vestments and things. It was kind of the the hangout place for the priests. It's where they did their rituals, where they prepared, uh, and, and all that kind of stuff. As you go further out, it was the, the inner court, so to speak, which is where the Jewish men got to be. And then even further out was the general court where the women got to be. Right? Because back then, patriarchal, women weren't allowed to worship in the same space as men. They didn't have the same level of privilege. And so they were one kind of removed. So you have God, holy, holies, one high priest once a year, next circle out, all the priests, next circle out, Jewish men, next circle out, Jewish women. And then there was the outer court, the uncovered outer court, no walls, and that's where the Gentiles got to hang out. So if you were a non-Jewish person who converted, who became Jewish religiously, you couldn't go into the temple as a Gentile. You were not able to access the full inside court. You had to stay in the outer court. And that's where you got to worship. Right? So this, this outer Gentile court is the most important thing to our, our passage because like anyone, this is where Jesus enters. Right? It doesn't matter how high up you are. The high priest to get into the temple had to go through the Gentile court, past the women court, past the men court, past the priest court to the holy holies. Everybody entered the temple the same way. Actually, you could enter the temple through one of ten gates, but it was relevant which one you, <laughs> you went into. Right? So they, they, the Gentile court is what's important here because when the passage starts, that's where Jesus enters and cleanses the temple. And that's where he finds the money changers. Let's take a look at that account real quick. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. So Jesus does two significant things. First, he drives out all of those who sold and bought in the temple. Those people were there for ease and convenience, but they also were there to rip people off. Here's what would happen. You were supposed to bring a sacrifice from your own possessions, your own livestock, right, to the temple to be sacrificed. That was the call that God had made upon his people. You will go, so once a year, every good Jewish man would take his family, and they would take their offering of livestock, and they would travel to Jerusalem, and they would go and offer their sacrifice as God had commanded them to. Well, the people in Jerusalem thought we could make this easier for people and make a buck at the same time. And what they would do is they would say, listen, traveling with a bull all the way for weeks and weeks is really hard. You could just leave your bull at home or your pigeon or whatever, and you could come to Jerusalem traveling light with no luggage. And when you get here, you can just buy all the animals you need to sacrifice. Have you ever been in like an airport gift shop and you realize you forgot a present? 
Like, that's what's happening here. Oh, no, we don't have the pigeon. Well, we sell pigeons, and we sell them for a markup. Right? And so there was ripping off going on, and more than anything, there was an ease of things going on. And so the religious leaders allowed the salesmen from Jerusalem into the temple itself, and this way you could just buy what you needed for the sacrifice right there. Two problems. First, huge markups. Jesus is upset because he is seeing those salesmen rip off the people. Right? He's, he's unhappy because he sees them taken advantage of, and God's people shouldn't be taken advantage of. And so, second, the easing of the process actually kind of defeats the purpose of the called sacrifice. What's happening is it was supposed to be hard to sojourn with your sacrifice to Jerusalem and to offer it. It was supposed to be difficult. It was supposed to be strenuous and time-consuming. That's the whole point. You get there and you make all that effort so that you have your heart in it when you get there. But instead, people were doing the easy thing of just going and then buying what they needed. Right? And so it removed a certain level of the effect of what it was supposed to have. And Jesus doesn't like to see that. And so his first problem is with the actual sales process itself. It's not right. So Jesus is angered that they're making this sacred sacrificial teaching ritual kind of a box checking. What he found is when he walked in, there was almost a religious circus happening. It didn't look like a sanctuary, but like a market. Imagine if we had like vendors in the back wall of our sanctuary every Sunday when you walked in trying to sell you the right wares so that you could worship properly, right? Oh, you want to see the screen? Well, you need these special glasses to see the screen. Here, we're going to sell them to you for $34 a week. Who's coming back next week if that's the game? Right? Some of you are like, oh, I'll just ditch the screen and pull out a hymnal. I'm with you, right? So that's the first thing. He doesn't like the process. The second reason Jesus gets mad is because of the location of the buying and selling. It's happening in the court of Gentiles, the place where they are supposed to worship. And so Jesus notices that the only place the Gentiles are able to worship is, is taken up. They have no place to go for worship. The Jewish people just took over their worship space and made it a market for the sake of their own convenience. There's no thought given to the Gentiles. Imagine if we said, hey, if you are... I don't know, I'm going to make up a random number. If you are a, a guy between 42 and 48 years old, and you're here today, uh, you can't be in the sanctuary. You have to worship in storage room B, and we put up a little computer monitor. But then when we got there, we had all kinds of stuff in front of it. You couldn't really see it. You could kind of hear, but the one speaker was blown, so it was crackling the whole time, and you heard like every fourth word of mine. And you said, well, I can't worship in this space. And we said, well, well tough, figure it out. We need the room here. Like that's, that's what's happening. And so Jesus gets upset because he came to bring salvation to the whole world. That's kind of the point of Christ. He comes and it's, it's no longer this ethnic religion of just the Jewish people, right? After Jesus, most of the New Testament is about how it goes to the whole world and how that affects the way that Jewish people operate and how law versus faith and gospel are supposed to work. Jesus comes to take the faith from just the Jewish people to the whole world. And so he comes to the temple and he sees that the whole world isn't able to worship because they put a farmer's market in their sanctuary. Angry. And so he overturns everything. 
So Jesus cleansing the temple is about, in part, ushering in his new kingdom. He overturns the wrong practices and he drives out the unlawful swindlers. And he does it to make space for the Gentiles and to say that worshiping me shouldn't cost a dime. The grace that I offer, I give freely. Jesus isn't something to be bought and sold. And if there's any doubt about the way that Jesus thinks and operates, he cements it by the very thing he does next. Look again at verse 14. The blind and lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them for free. So he shoves all the money changers and market people and livestock salespersons out of the sanctuary. And instead, where there's now space for them, all of the lame, the beggars, the blind, the people that don't know him, those who need him the most, come in and he just starts healing people in that space. He revives the Gentile court for all that might want to come to him and offers them a space to worship where there had been hypocrisy and lip service given to God. Now there is genuine healing and worship taking place. And so Jesus, in a way, doesn't just cleanse the temple. He cleans the temple. He restores it. And he's addressing one of the worst elements of sinfulness that we experience as God's people today, and that's hypocrisy. See, the temple had become a place, a house full of people who outwardly were completing all of God's requirements, but inwardly their hearts weren't in it at all. They had come to conduct the business of religion not come to worship the God of the universe. He said, all right, we got to get there. All right, what is it, a bull and a pigeon? All right, that's 20 bucks, great. Here, burn my bull, burn my pigeon. Thanks, priest, we'll see you next year. And they were checking off their religious box the way that you would just say, well, I guess I got to go to church or people will call me and wonder where I am. Oh, I guess I'll go. I got nothing better to do today. <clears throat> right? They were checking, <clears throat> checking a box. And so now... I promise we'll return to the fig tree because the next thing we need here is a lesson in ancient Near East horticulture. We have the temple cleansing. Let's go to the fig tree. Fig trees were a unique kind of fruit tree. Fig trees had a very specific, not just growing season as most fruits and vegetables do, but a, 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 a specific way that a fig tree would grow figs. And the season for figs, when you could get figs from a fig tree, would be in like roughly mid to late May and a little bit into June. That was the time where you could get figs, right? About a month or two before that, fig trees would develop these small edible buds where the figs eventually would be. They were called pagim. Uh, if you talk to a modern Arab today, they would call them takash, right? But they were these little buds that were edible, and they would come around March. You would see that the tree didn't have any leaves yet, but the buds would start to show up, and you could pick them and eat them. Yeah, you know, it wasn't like a fig, but it was something. You could kind of pick at it. Uh, and then in April, the, the leaves would grow and the tree would become really, really lush, right? And still have these buds on them. And eventually, by May, the buds would fall off and be replaced by full figs. Right? So that's kind of the growing process of the fig. You, you would have the bud replaced by the fig, but in April, it would just be leaves and buds. And so let's think about the timeline of Jesus. Easter, the Holy Week time frame that we're in now, would have been in April. Right? So we'd be in the time where there is luscious leaves on the fig trees and little buds, but not yet figs. And so 
Holy Week being in April, Jesus comes to it, and Jesus sees that the tree is lush with leaves. Remember, buds, then leaves, then buds fall off, then figs. So when he sees the tree with leaves, he would expect it to have covered all over it these little pagim that he could go and eat. So in fact, when Jesus goes to the tree, he expects it to have some kind of fruit. He never says that he expects figs, but he expects it to have something. And when he gets there, the tree instead is barren. Now, remember the chronology. The fig tree comes first. They're on their way to the temple. The disciples are walking with Jesus. He encounters this tree. He's hungry. He wants to eat. He goes to the tree that should have little pagims. He doesn't see them. He curses the tree. And the disciples are kind of like, okay, well, that is a little intense, but all right. Then they go and they watch Jesus cleanse the temple with all the implications and, and behind-the-scenes understandings of what we just talked about with him cleansing the temple. And then the next morning when they go to the tree, they see that the tree, in fact, is completely cursed and dead. That's the chronology that we have here. And so the tree incident surrounds the temple incident, and that's where we find our answers as to what's going on with this fig tree. The tree is an object lesson for the temple, and the temple is an object lesson for the whole religious enterprise of the time, for both Jews at the time of Jesus and for us today. The tree looked lush from a distance, but when you got close, it wasn't bearing any buds. It was a barren tree. It had all the appearance of a lush fig tree, ready to bear fruit, ready to satisfy the hunger. But it was actually dead when you got close to it. And so he goes to the temple then, and the temple should be the place where God is rightfully, wholeheartedly worshipped. The temple at the time was the most majestic structure that anyone had ever seen built. I mean, it was, it was like walking into the Sistine Chapel today and raising your head up to that ceiling and just being in awe of, of the majesty of that space. Right? When you walked into God's temple, you should be overcome with the presence of the Lord and people filling that space wholeheartedly in worship. And so Jesus is walking up to the temple. He sees it in the distance in all of its splendor and majesty, and he walks in ready to worship with his people in in spirit and in truth, and he comes in and he finds a farmer's market. It looked so lush from the outside, but when he got there, it was barren. There was nothing of substance happening in that temple Just a bunch of people selling pigeons. And so Jesus then curses and overturns everything. He says, look, if if, if you're just, if if this temple is just going to exist for salesmanship, if it's not going to do anything, uh uh-uh, out of here. And then the next day, they find that the fig tree that Jesus had cursed for appearing lush but not being lush was in fact withered. And so we can see how this is a metaphor for overly religious people. Jesus was using the tree as an object lesson. And so Mark tells the story in order, again, because the Greeks would have wanted it. Matthew talks about the temple first and then the tree. And here's the reason I think he does it. If Matthew, talking to Jewish audiences, had mentioned the tree first, he would have lost his audience. Because the moment they would have heard, out of context, of a rabbi cursing that tree in such an un- undignified way, 
they would have stopped listening to anything Matthew had to say. Because no respecting rabbi would have conducted himself that way. Right? And so Matthew starts by accounting for the temple and then follows up with the fig tree so that it becomes obvious that the two are supposed to be related to one another in order to keep the interest of a Jewish person who's listening. Because Jews think in theological overall 30,000-foot view wholeness. And so they would have heard the tree story after the temple story and put two and two together to some degree, hopefully. So that's why the order is out. But the metaphor is even more fitting when you start to notice that all throughout the Old Testament, that Israel is actually compared to a fig tree all the time. You go to places like Micah 7 or Jeremiah 8, and you'll see all these accounts of Israel being compared to a fig tree in terms of its bearing or non-bearing of fruit. And so now we get to what Jesus is doing. How do we apply this to our modern context? Jesus, in ancient times and still today, is condemning our religious hypocrisy. That's what's happening here. Now hear me clearly. He's not demanding perfections of our hearts. Every one of us will praise the name of the Lord, but fall short of the glory of God, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about hypocrisy. I'm talking about the cursing of those who would just kind of come to be part of the church dealio because that's what you do, or that's what your parents make you do, or that's what your friends make you do, or that's where your social circles are. You come here for whatever reason that has very little to do with your actual love of Christ and relationship that you have with Jesus. You might be a member of a church, and you might have a relationship with its parishioners. You may even be an elder there, but you don't actually have a relationship with Jesus. That's the hypocrisy that he's dealing with here. He says, look, there's a lot of folks that look really lush in their faith from the outside. But when you get there, there's not even buds, let alone figs. There's nothing. If that's who you are, then cursed. That's a harsh sentence, isn't it? Of course, Jesus is all about moving us from mere religious practice to a truly new heart. What we don't know yet in Matthew 21 is that later on, Jesus is actually replacing the temple itself. When Jesus breathes his last in Matthew 27, as he dies, the veil of the curtain in the temple that separates the Holy of Holies is torn in two and opened up. There's no longer the separation. The temple becomes entirely unnecessary the moment Jesus breathes his last because he is about restoring. He says, look, this temple's cursed. It's a den of robbers, a house of thieves. It's pointless. Why is it pointless? Because no one here is worshiping me in spirit and in truth. I'm going to die on the cross for you and for me and for all who would call upon my name so that you can actually Worship me and have the right heart. So Jesus curses those with a hypocritical heart. And then he invites us in and says, look, listen, the the worshiping thing is not about the outward religious appearance. It's all about the heart. If you read any of the Gospels, anytime Jesus speaks or interacts with somebody, what is he constantly harping home? It's not about the practice. It's about the heart. Because from the heart comes everything else. Don't worry about whether or not you have the right Christian look or the right attendance or the Sunday school medals or you've taught classes or what leadership you're a part of or not a part of. Those things will take care of themselves. If you have a heart for me, if you're truly shaped by me, if, if Christ has entered your life and taken over your heart, 
All of those other things will naturally work themselves out. But it can't happen the other way around. You're not going to religiously practice yourself into Christian faithfulness. You need a relationship with him. I don't care how put together you look when you get here. I don't care how much you attend here or don't attend here. Jesus doesn't either. He's not interested. He's not interested in being a notch on your belt. He's interested in having your whole heart devoted to him. And so if that describes your faith life, I would implore you to kind of fall on your face in prayer. This isn't meant to make you to be harsh or make you feel guilty, but it's meant to make, make us think. How much of our religious practice is just because it's what you do? Versus because, man, we just get up in the morning and we have an affection and love for Jesus and what he's done for us that is so deep and so entrenched that we just can't help but come here and, and fall on our face and worship and in awe of him. Right? If that's not you, then pray. Ask the Lord to convince you, to convict you, to draw you in closer. Set aside time to spend with the Lord, to build that relationship. And I promise you, in your genuineness, he will meet you, he will find you, he will pick you up, and he will carry you. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for <laughs> lessons that are sometimes confusing and difficult, but Lord, point well made. Father, we ask for forgiveness for any times that we do anything in this building that somehow is religious display. We want to seek to be a body that authentically loves you deeply, that worries more about our own hearts than about the outward appearance. We want to be a body that you use to draw in people from all over that desperately just need your love and your care and your gospel truth. We praise you that you care enough when you walk into a temple to cleanse it, not just to let things go on, not just to be angry, but to take action because you are a God of action. We pray that you might take the actions that are needed here. Lord, cleanse anything in this church that needs to be removed. Any hypocrisy of our own doing, whether that's individuals or church as a whole and leadership, we pray that you would clean this place so that you might present it pure as your bride when you come again. Be with us. We love you. We praise you. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.